Chapter Eleven of the Range Dwellers by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A cable snaps. Our lazy land, smiling and dreaming to itself, had disappeared. In its stead, the wind howled down the river from the west and lashed the water into what would have looked like respectable waves to one who had not been on the ocean and seen the real thing. The new grass lay flat upon the prairies, and chunks of dirt rattled down from the roof of Pochette's primitive abiding place. It is true the sun shone, but I really wouldn't have been at all surprised if the wind had blown it out most any time. Pochette himself looked worried when we trooped in to breakfast, by the way, old King never showed up till we were through. Then he limped in and sat down to the table without a glance our way. While we were smoking over by the fireplace, Pochette came sliding up to us. He was a little skimpy man with crooked legs, a real French cut of beard, and an apologetic manner. I think he rather prided himself upon his familiarity with the English language, especially that part which is censored so severely by editors that only a half-dozen words are permitted to appear in cold type, and sometimes even they must hide their faces behind such flimsy veils as this. D-N. So, if I never quote Mr. Pochette verbatim, you'll know why. I think you will not wish for a croissant the river, no? He began ingratiatingly. The wind she blow like dash 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 in my butt she's that small she dash dash I caught King looking at us from under his eyebrows, so I was airily indifferent to wind or water. Sure, we want to cross, I said, just as soon as we finish our smoke, Pochette. But mon Dieu Ever hear tell of a Frenchman that didn't begin his sentence that way? In this case, however, Pochette really said just that. The wind she blow like dash. A hurricane. By and by, by she blow some more, I quoted bravely. It's all right, Pochette. Let her howl. We're going to cross just the same. It isn't likely you'll have to make the trip for anyone else today. I didn't mean to, but I looked over toward King and caught the glint of his unfriendly eyes upon me. Also, the corners of his mouth hunched up for a second in what looked like a sneer. But the Lord knows I wasn't casting any aspersions on his nerve. He must have taken it that way, though, for he went out when we did and hooked up, and when we drove down to where the little old scow they called a ferry was bobbing like a decoy duck in the water, he was just behind us with his team. Pochette looked at him, and at us, and at the river, and his meager little face with its pointed beard looked like a perturbed gnome, if you ever saw one. The little boat, she no stand for the big load. The wind, she... Ah, uh, what you running a ferry for? Frosty cut in impatiently. There's a good strong current on today. She'll go across on a high run. Pochette shook his head still more dubiously, till I got down and bolstered up his courage with a small piece of gold. They're all alike. Their courage ebbs and flows on a golden tide, if you'll let me indulge in a bit of unnecessary hyperbole. He worked the scow around, end on to the bank, so that we could drive on. The team wasn't a bit stuck on going, but Frosty knows how to handle horses, and they steadied when he went to their heads and talked to them. 
we were so busy with our own affairs that we didn't notice what was going on behind us till we heard pochette declaiming bad profanity in a high soprano then i turned and he was trying to stand off old king but king wasn't that sort he yelled to us to move up and make room and then took down his whip and started up pochette pirouetted out of the way and stood holding to the low plank railing while he went on saying things that properly pronounced must have been very blasphemous king paid about as much attention to him as he would to a good-sized prairie dog chittering beside its burrow i reckon he knew pochette pretty well he got his rig in place and climbed down and went to his horse's heads now shove off dimmit he ordered just as if no one had been near bursting a blood vessel within ten feet of him pochette gulped worked the point of his beard up and down like a villain in a second-rate melodrama and shoved off the current and the wind caught us in their grip and we swashed out from shore and got under way i can't say that trip looked good to me from the first rod out of course the river couldn't rear up and get real savage like the ocean but there were choppy little waves that were plenty nasty enough once you got to bucking them with a blum-nosed old scow fastened to a cable that swayed and sagged in the wind that came howling down on us and with two rigs on we filled her from bow to stern all but about four feet around the edges frosty looked across to the farther shore then at the sagging cable and then at me i gathered that he had his doubts too but he wouldn't say anything nobody did for that matter even pochette wasn't doing anything but chew his whiskers and watch the cable then she broke with a snap like a rifle and a jolt that came near throwing us off our feet pochette gave a yell and relapsed into french that i'd hate to translate it would shock even his own countrymen the fairy ducked and bobbed now there was nothing to hold his nose steady to the current and went careering down the river with all hands aboard and looking for trouble we didn't do anything though there wasn't anything to do but stay right where we were and take chances if she stayed right side up we would probably land eventually if she flopped over which she seemed trying to do we'd get a cold bath and lose our teams if no worse soon as i thought of that i began unhooking the traces of the horse nearest the poor brutes ought at least to have a chance to swim for it frosty caught on and went to work too and in half a minute we had them free of the wagon and stripped of everything but their bridles they would have as good a show as we and maybe better i looked back to see what king was doing he was having troubles of his own trying to keep one of his cayuses on all its feet at once it was scared poor devil and it took all his strength on the bit to keep it from rearing and maybe upsetting the whole bunch pochette wasn't doing anything but lament so i went back and unhooked king's horses for him and took off the harness and threw it in the back of his wagon so they wouldn't tangle their feet in it when it came to a showdown i don't think he was what you could call grateful he never looked my way at all but went on cussing the horse he was holding for acting up just when he should keep his wits i went back to frosty and we stood elbows touching waiting for whatever was coming for what seemed a long while nothing came but wind and water but i don't mind saying that there was plenty of that and if either one had been suddenly barred out of the game we wouldn't any of us call the umpire harsh names we drifted slippery slosh 
and the wind ripped holes in the atmosphere and made our eyes water with the bare force of it when we faced the west. And none of us had anything to say except Pochette. He said a lot, I remember, but never mind what. I don't suppose he was mentally responsible at the time. Then a long, narrow, yellow tongue of sandbar seemed to reach right out into the river and lap us up. We landed with a worse jolt than when we broke away from the cable, and the gray-blue river went humping past without us. Frosty and I looked at each other and grinned. After all, we were coming out of the deal better than we had expected, for we were still right side up and on the side of the river toward home. We were a mile or so downriver from the trail, but once we got on the bank with our rigs, that was nothing. We had landed head-on, with the nose of the scow plowed high and dry. Being at the front, we went at getting our team off and our wagon. There was a four- or five-foot jump to make, and the horses didn't know how about it at first. But with one of us pulling and the other slashing them over the rump, they made it one at a time. The sand was soft and acted something like quicksand, too, and we hustled them to shore and tied them to some bushes. The bank was steep there, and we didn't know how we were going to make the climb, but we left that to worry over afterward. We still had our rig to get ashore, and it began to look like quite a contract. We went back with our boot tracks going deep, and then filling up and settling back almost level, six steps behind us. Frosty looked back at them and scowled. Quicksand that isn't quicksand, he said. This layout will stand about as little monkeying with as any sand I ever met up with. Time we make a few trips over it, she's going to be pudding without the raisins. And that's a picnic, with our rig on the main deck, as you might say. We went back and sat, swinging our legs off the freeboard end of the ferry boat, and rolled us a smoke apiece and considered the next move. King was somewhere back between our rig and his, cussing Pochette to a fare-you-well for having such a rotten layout and making white men pay good money for the privilege of risking their lives and property upon it. We'll have to unload and take the wagon to pieces and pack everything ashore. I guess that's our only show, said Frosty. We had just given up my idea of working the scow up along the bar to the bank. We couldn't budge her off the sand and Pochette warned us that if we did, the wind would immediately commence doing things to us again. Frosty's idea seemed the only possible way, so we threw away our cigarettes and got ready for business. The dismembering and carrying ashore of that road wagon promised to be no light task. Frosty yelled to Pochette to come and get busy, and went to work on the rig. It looked to me like a case where we were all in the same fix, and personal spite shouldn't count for anything. But King was leaning against the wheel of his buggy, cramming tobacco into his stubby pipe, the same one apparently that I had rescued from the pickle barrel, and seeing the wind scatter half of it broadcast, as though he didn't care a rap whether he got solid earth beneath his feet once more, or went floating down the river. I wanted to propose a truce for such time as it would take to get us all safe on terra firma, but on second thoughts... I refrained. We could get off without his help, and he was the sort of man who would cheerfully have gone to his last long sleep at the bottom of that boiling river rather than accept the assistance of an enemy. The next couple of hours was a season of aching back and sloppy feet 
and grunting and swearing that I don't much care about remembering in detail. The wind blew till the tears ran down our cheeks. The sand stuck and clogged every move we made till I used to dream of it afterward. If you think it was just a simple little job, taking that rig to pieces and packing it to dry land on our backs, just give another guess. And if you think we were any of us in a mood to look at it as a joke, you're miles off the track. Pochette helped us like a little man. He had to, or we'd have done him up right there. Old King sat on the ferry rail and smoked and watched us break our backs, sardonically. I did think I had that last word in the wrong place, but I think not. We did break our backs sardonically, and he watched us in the same fashion, so the word stands as she is. When the last load was safe on the bank, I went back to the boat. It seemed a low-down way to leave a man, and now he knew I wasn't fishing for help. I didn't mind speaking to the old reprobate, so I went up and faced him, still sitting on the ferry rail, and still smoking. Mr. King, I said politely as I could, we're all right now, and if you like, we'll help you off. It won't take long if we all get to work. He took two long puffs and pressed the tobacco down in his pipe. You go to hell, he advised me for the second time. When I want any help from you or your tribe, I'll let you know. It took me just one second to backslide from my politeness. Go to the devil, then, I snapped. I hope you have to stay on a damn bar a week. Then I went plucking back through the sand that almost pulled the shoes off my feet every step, kicking myself for many kinds of a fool. Lord, but I was mad. Pochette went back to the boat and old king, after nearly getting kicked into the river for hinting that we ought to pay for the damages and trouble we had caused him. Frosty and I weren't in any frame of mind for such a hold-up, and it didn't take him long to find it out. The bank there was so steep that we had to pack my trunk and what other truck had been brought out from Osage up to the top by hand. That was another temper-sweetening job. Then we put the wagon together, hitched on the horses, and they managed to get to the top with it by a scratch. It all took time, and as for patience, we'd been out of that commodity for so long we hardly knew it by name. The last straw fell on us just as we were loading up. I happened to look down upon the ferry, and what do you suppose that old devil was doing? He had torn up the back part of the plank floor of the ferry and had laid it along the sand for a bridge. He had made an incline from the boat nose to the bar, and had rough-locked his wagon and driven it down. Just as we looked, he had come to the end of his bridge, and he and Pochette were taking up the planks behind and extending the platform out in front. Well, maybe you think Frosty and I stood there congratulating the old fox. Frosty wanted me to kick him, I remember. And he said a lot of things that sounded inspired to me that hit my feelings off so straight. If we had had the sense to do what old King was doing, we'd have been ten or fifteen miles nearer home than we were. But anyway, we were up the bank ahead of him, and we loaded in the last package and drove away from the painful scene at a lope. And you can imagine how we didn't love old King any better after that experience. End of chapter 11 Recording by Tom Penn